But speaking of series, we find ourselves here in the midst of our ongoing series that is a walk through the Old Testament, a year-long journey through the Old Testament, a blazing grace. A blazing grace, another look at the Old Testament. And we've divided the Old Testament up, for those of you that have not been regulars here, into seven basic chapters. Beginning, family, exodus, land, kings, exile, Messiah. We've made our way through beginning, that's Genesis. We've made our way through family, that's the latter part of Genesis. We've made our way through Exodus, and we are now two sermons in, out of about nine, into our chapter on the land. So we're roughly halfway through our journey. And today we're going to spend all of our time in the book of Numbers. So why don't you just go there right now, Numbers. We call it the book of Numbers, the fourth book of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. But the Jews refer to the book simply as in the wilderness. Right there in Numbers chapter 1, verse 1, we encounter the word wilderness. And so the traditional Jewish name for the book is either just wilderness or usually in the wilderness. Look at verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tabernacle of meeting on the first day of the second month, in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying... And so there's, there's what we're going to be talking about today. In fact, today's sermon and next week's sermon is going to be sort of two parts where we'll be taking a look at the experience of the Israelites on their sojourn that was supposed to be just a few weeks turned into 40 years in the wilderness. And um, then after that, we'll go to Joshua. Then we have a very, very difficult sermon that I've already been in preparation for. It's about three or four weeks away. And we're going to be taking a look at what is sometimes referred to as the genocides of the Old Testament. What's going on there? Why is God saying, wipe out everybody in the city? Not just the men, but also the women and the children. And a lot of people read that and they're just like, whoa, you know, that's, is that the God of love? Is that Jesus? What's going on? with these seeming ethnic cleansings in the Old Testament. And one of the things that we decided when we sat down to study through the Old Testament in a year, Jared, myself, and Daniel, was that we did not want to avoid the difficult passages. We wanted to really, in as much as it's possible with the time constraints that we have, to hit head-on some of these thorny and problematic and difficult passages in the Old Testament. And so that's going to be a big one. Because shortly after this sermon and, and next week's, we're going to see the baton, or as you Aussies would say, the baton, being passed into the hand of Joshua. And Joshua is going to go into the Canaan land, but he's not just going to go in there to live peaceably and amicably with the denizens that were already there. They will be extirpated from their own land, and in most cases, killed. And how do we reconcile that with a God of love? And so that's coming up. We're not there yet, but we're heading rapidly in that direction. We're going to start with a quick word of prayer, and then we're going to dive right into the book of Numbers. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, what an appropriate book. Father, what an appropriate book for this time. Numbers in the wilderness. We are a church in the wilderness. Father, we go to the book of Revelation, and we see there that the church is in the wilderness for that 1,260-day or year period. And Father, that is, that is us. We are in a wilderness time, in a wilderness place. And yet, Father, paradoxically, this doesn't feel like the wilderness because we are surrounded by technology, we are surrounded by electricity, we are surrounded by the accoutrements of modernity. So this doesn't feel like the wilderness. But, Father, spiritually speaking and chronologically speaking, we are in the wilderness. And so as we go back and take a look at your people Israel and how they experienced 
the wilderness and the lessons they learned and the trials that they underwent. And Father, may this be a lesson, not just a museum-style lesson where we're looking back on a dusty, old, antiquated past, but Father, may we see, when we look in the book of Numbers, a mirror where we see ourselves and our own struggles and our own frailties and our own foibles and faults. Father, be with us today. May we, at the end of the presentation, though, though we've been perhaps wounded, may we not be wounded to death. Remind us that the difference between a surgeon and a butcher is that a surgeon cuts to heal while a butcher cuts to kill. And Father, we know that if you're going to wield the scalpel, it won't be to kill us, it will be to heal us. And so Father, please come and heal us today is our prayer in Jesus' name. Let everyone say, Amen. All right, we're in the book of Numbers, in the wilderness, and I'm going to invite you to direct your attention right to the screen. As much as you can turn the lights down without compromising the quality of the video, Nate, you want to do that. Uh, if you can't do it at all, then I'll just trust you. Let me turn my clicker on here. So we're in the fourth book of Moses, Numbers, and we're calling today's presentation In the Wilderness Part 1. And I want to start by just sort of orienting us to the book of Numbers. Next week, we'll spend most of our time in the book of Deuteronomy. So this is going to be a sort of one-size-fits-all message for the book of Numbers, which is not easy to do when you've got 36 chapters to wrestle through. But fortunately for us, there is a single story, a single narrative that we're going to find in the latter half of the book of Numbers that really encapsulates the whole essence of what's taking place in this marvelous book. What I thought I would do... And what I spent a lot of time doing yesterday was just sort of surveying the lay of the land, looking at the book of Numbers, trying to understand the chronology, which is not always easy, reminding myself of the high points, sort of looking, as it were, at the, the range, the mountain range of the book of Numbers, and associating myself again with those events, those tall peaks that rise above some of the others. Some familiar stories here, and then some stories not as familiar. So these are the major events, just to sort of orient us. First of all, the first thing that takes place in the book of Numbers is a census, and that's actually why we refer to the book as the book of Numbers. There are two census that take place, one right at the very beginning, just as they're preparing to leave Sinai, and the other at the end when they're just about to go into the Canaan land. So these two census are sort of the, the parenthesis or the bookends around this book of Numbers. You might wonder why it's called that, and that's why. Of course, the Jews, as we've already mentioned, called it simply in the wilderness, in the wilderness, so the opening chapters sort of deal with the census. It then moves into some additional elements of instruction regarding feasts and the priests and the sanctuary. Remember that the children of Israel have received the sanctuary. They've received Torah. They have received uh, the, 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 the great gospel truth from Sinai's summit. And they are now preparing to make their way, they think, on a rather simple uh, journey into the Canaan land. It should have taken them maybe a month not more than two months for this very simple journey, geographically speaking, but in fact, this is going to be a journey that will take the better part of 40 years. And that 40 years takes place in the book of Numbers. The journey begins in chapters 9 and 10. Shortly thereafter, and this becomes one of the major themes of the book of Numbers, Israel begins to complain. And in the first instance, you might remember the story that God sends them quail. Ah, oh, they were longing, as they said, for the flesh pots of Egypt, looking back through rose-colored glasses at what they, what they thought was the better life. And so God says, okay, you want some flesh? I'll give you some flesh. And they gorged themselves on this quail because they were tired of the manna, what they called later this worthless bread. Ah, oh, we're tired of this worthless bread. And if they were tired of it already, what's it going to be 40 years later when they've been eating it? Year after year after year after year. Then Aaron and Miriam begin to dissent in chapter 12. That takes place because 
Moses had married an Ethiopian woman, and Aaron and Miriam didn't think this was the best, and this sort of family conflict takes place, and then God has to put Aaron and Miriam in their place. Chapter 13, Jared covered ably for us last Sabbath. The spies were sent into Canaan. And then, of course, 14 and 15, and Jared also covered this, Pastor Jared, Israel refuses to enter Canaan, which leads to a rebellion against Moses, a rebellion that you might remember of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. This becomes one of the centerpieces of the book of Numbers, where, where Moses' leadership, not only by Miriam, Miriam and Aaron, but also by people within Israel, are questioning Moses' leadership. Who are you? We're going to see that today. Who are you? Who made you boss over us? Why did you lead us here? Shouldn't you have led us differently? And Moses' leadership is regularly scrutinized and criticized in the book of Numbers. We're going to see that today. Then chapters 18 and 19, some additional instruction. In chapter 20, Moses strikes the rock. This is the event, you might recall, that causes God to say to Moses, Moses, oh, I wish you hadn't done that. I wish you hadn't done that because you're a leader. I have to hold you to a standard, a very high standard, a standard in which if I ignore your rebellion, then that's going to cause others to feel that they are free to rebel. And it pains me to say this, but you are not going to be able to go into the promised land. He says, but I will let you see it. I will let you see it. Aaron dies in that chapter, chapter 20. Then the book sort of wraps up with the fiery serpent story. That's where we're going to spend the balance of our time here today. A lengthy section given to Balak and Balaam. The second census is taken in chapter 26. The appointment of Joshua as the new leader in 27, which we'll be at in a couple weeks. And then finally, some last minute sort of instructions and details before they go into the land of Canaan. So that's sort of the airplane view, the helicopter view of the book of Numbers. Some of those stories you would have remembered, right? Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, and you would have remembered the quail story. Now here was the thing that I found most fascinating in my study the last couple weeks of the book of Numbers is that the architecture of the book is really unusual. In that way, it's a little bit like the book of Genesis with this really unusual architecture that we've already discussed where in the first 11 chapters, Moses covers some 2,000 years of human history, and then in the next 39 chapters, he covers about 300 years. There seems to be this gross imbalance, like why are you paying so much attention to this single family of Abraham and so little attention to the early earth? And And Numbers is very much like this. It's not like an evenly distributed, nice walk through the wilderness experience of the Israelites. Not at all. In fact, it's hugely disproportionate toward uh, the, the, the experience not revolving around the 40 years. The 40 years gets a very small number of chapters and verses relative to the rest of the book. Look at this. Chapters 1 to 10 covers 20 days. There's only 36 chapters in the book, and you're 10 chapters in, it's 20 days have passed. Right? Then you get to chapters 11, chapter 11 and then 13.3. This covers just a few weeks. It was actually quite fun for me to sit down and try to figure out the chronology and the places. I really enjoyed it. And uh, then you get to chapter 13.4 down to 14.38. That covers 40 days. So all the way up to about chapter 15, you're almost halfway through the book and you've covered a few months. You're almost halfway through the book. You're just a a few months in, and then you go to the period that we traditionally think about when we think about the book of Numbers or we think about the wilderness wanderings of the Israelites, and that's the 40 years. But remarkably, that 40 years takes place just between basically chapter 14, the end of chapter 14, and the first verse of chapter 20. 40 years condensed into about five chapters, where the early uh, chapters of the book, 10 chapters, were dedicated to just 20 days. 
And then it closes, uh, chapters 20 to 27 cover just a few months or years. And so there's not a lot of time given to what was taking place during the 40 years. In fact, there are just a few precious instances that we have access to, one of which we're going to talk about today. Another sort of misunderstanding that many of us have when we think about the 40 years is that we, I think, have this idea, or at least I did, that the Israelites were like wandering around, you know, sort of aimlessly, you know, listlessly from place to place, from camp to camp, when in reality, the majority of that 40 years was spent basically in one location, in and around the borders of Kadesh Barnea. There were some minor movements, but when you actually go look at the chronology of the movements in Numbers chapter 33, for the most part, they were in and around a single location. Yes, there would have been some regional shifts but it wasn't like they were just wandering aimlessly for hundreds of miles. They were more or less in a single location. Now, those are the times. Now let's talk about the themes and then get into our specific story today. We've looked at the events. We've looked at the times. What are the major themes? Right? For those of you that like to sleep during the second half of the sermon, stay awake just for this part, and then you can take your snooze if you're inclined. The big themes are these. First of all, the priestly ministry, the tabernacle, and the feasts. That's most of the opening chapters Things having to do with the second Passover and the ministry of the Levites, the tithes and other things that we talked about a couple weeks ago. Israel's murmuring and complaining, massive theme in the book of Numbers. We're going to see that more in just a moment. A paradox of Yahweh's leading contrasted with and coupled with Israel's wandering, right? And what we mean by wandering is they didn't just go in a straight line right to their destination, A to B. It was sort of A to B to C to D to E. They spent a lot of time at E and then eventually into the Canaan land. Moses' intercession and leadership, there are several times, including in the story that we're going to take a look at today, where Moses' intercession is very anticipatory of the intercession of Jesus, standing between the living and the dead. Aaron himself has a similar experience where, where Moses is going to God and saying, God, no! God's like, that's it, I'm done, I'm over. And he's almost presented at times as like impatient, like, oh, I just can't handle it. And Moses is like, no, please. And so Moses' intercession is a major issue here. And then finally, and probably the, the largest overarching theme of the book is the failures and fragility of humanity. Now, of course, it's in and around the experience of Israel, ancient Israel, but their experience is very transposable to our own, and you're going to see that. In fact, I gave a few little heads-ups to the uh, young people in the Sabbath school class today about what I was going to be talking about, and uh, one of them said, oh, please, please, I'm already on thin ice with my parents on this issue. Don't push it too hard. So we'll see how we go. I told them to trust me. Just trust me. Turn with me to Numbers chapter 21. Numbers 21. We find ourselves here in the latter half of Numbers, racing through the 40 years. In fact, and this was new to me, the experience of the fiery serpents takes place at the end of the 40 years, right? Right down toward the end. Aaron has uh, died in the end of chapter 20, and we come into Numbers chapter 21. And between verses 4 and 9, we encounter this experience that really encapsulates the entire book of Numbers in just a few short verses. Five or six verses, and you can take the whole essence, the major themes of the book of Numbers, in a single idea, in a single story, in a single narrative. And it's hugely important for us. Now, let me just give you a little background on what's happened. The children of Israel have arrived at the borders of Edom. And they were really keen to go on a more direct route through Edom, but the king of Edom refused and said, no. 
If you come here, we'll slay you with the sword. And the children of Israel didn't have the faith to go in. At that time, God was not yet uh, displacing the uh, inhabitants of Canaan. And so there they were on the borders of Edom, and they could look out and see the green valleys, right? They've got, they've got 38, 40 years, somewhere between 38 and 40 years of wear on their sandals, right? Those people that would have been just middle-aged or young, say in their 20s or 30s when they came to Sinai, are now in their 60s and 70s, and they're just tired of living in tents, tired of being immigrants, tired of being refugees, just tired of living in the desert. And they came right up to the borders of Eden there, and they could see beautiful green valleys. They could see palm trees. It must have looked like an oasis to them. And they just made a simple request, please let us pass through your land. We won't take anything. And the king of Edom refused. Oh, but the way around Edom was way out into the the desert, up into the wastes of the the land around Edom, and they didn't want to go. And so they sent a second request to the king of Edom, please, can we pass through? We promise we won't take anything that's not ours. And the king of Edom said, no again. And so they find themselves having to go on this rather rounded, circuitous journey around a place that would have otherwise been quite nice, quite comparably leisurely, and they are now having to go wander into the wilderness, the wastes of the wilderness. And we pick it up in verse 4. That orients us to verse 4. Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. The soul of the people became very discouraged. Your translation, if you're reading something other than King James or New King James, probably says the people became impatient. Literally in the Hebrew, what it says is the soul of the people was short. The soul was short. We have similar kind of language in the English uh, language. We'll say things like similar sort of idioms. We'll say, don't be short with me. Don't be impatient with me. Right? Oh, he was a bit short short-tempered, this idea that, that, that there's a shortness, that, that your patience, you're down to a single nerve and somebody's standing on it and, and the people are frustrated. They've already got 30 plus years, almost 40 years in their sandals and in their feet and in their legs and in their muscles and tendons and ligaments and they don't want to walk any longer than they have to walk and now they've been told because of the discourteousness of the king of Edom, hey, you've got to go around and they don't like it and so they're this wasn't the plan. Have you, ever had, have you ever had plans go wrong? You made plans and it didn't turn out that way? If you're anything like me, you want to know who do we blame? Who's to blame for this inconvenience? Who's to blame for this, for this detour? But I want to tell you something. Not everything that happens to us is God's will. Not everything that happens to us is some part of God's grand design and blueprint. And I know there's a lot of preachers that preach that, and there's a lot of people that believe that, but you can do yourself a giant favor and disabuse your mind of it right now. There are lots of things that happen in this world, not just to others, but to you that are not a part of God's plan. One of the great affronteries to the goodness of God and the character of God is when well-meaning preachers and Christians will say to that young girl who was abused or that young girl who was raped or that young family whose child was murdered or somebody died in a, in a drunk driving accident, and they'll say, oh, you know, God knows. It's all a part of God's plan. No, it's not. 
How dare you insult the Most High, the Holy God, Jehovah, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and suggest that something of that nature, some cruel, disgusting, repulsive, abusive, oppressive, manipulative thing could ever be a part of his larger plan. God uses certain things, but that does not mean he chooses those things. Can somebody say amen? There's just things that happen. Just a product of living on a broken planet surrounded by thousands and millions of broken people that make decisions. And sometimes when people make decisions, it reacts and reverberates negatively in your life. Not everything that happens to you is God's fault. And not everything that happens to you is even God's plan. There are things that happen that even God goes, oh, I wish that hadn't happened. We do a huge disservice to God and to Scripture and to believers when we say to them, oh, sister, I'm so sorry that happened to you, but, but God will work it all out. It's all a part of His big plan. Yes, God will work it all out, but that doesn't mean it's a part of His big plan. Scripture says all things work together for good to them that love the Lord and are called according to His purpose, Romans 8, 28. It doesn't say that all things are good, just that they work out for good. And here, who was to blame? The king of Edom. But who was really to blame? Well, they were. God had never intended for them to be in this particular situation at all, right? On the borders of of Edom some 40 years after their original appointment, and they're like, oh, we're going to see here in a moment who they complain against. And they complain not against the ones that they should have been complaining against, which I suppose could have been perhaps the king of Edom, but more precisely themselves, they end up complaining against God and Moses. The first and most important thing we want to take away here is that not everything that happens to you is somehow a part of God's giant blueprint or master plan. There are evil agents in the world, both human and demonic, and they have the ability to influence the world. If somebody drinks uh, too much alcohol and gets in a car and drives down a road and kills a family of four, that's not God's plan. That's a product of an agent making a decision that has reverberations in the lives of others. And if you think, wow, that makes the world a little more scary, a little more terrifying to know that God's not in control of every single detail and every single element and every single action, well, the world should feel a little scary because we find ourselves, as Scripture presents, in, in a war zone, on a battlefield. Someone quipped that the world looks like a war zone because it is a war zone. Sometimes we feel a little too complacent, a little too comfortable living here, the azure blue waters of the Gold Coast, the swaying palms and the you know, beautiful sunshiny, 300 sunshiny days out of the year. It doesn't feel like a war zone here, but I'm telling you, in Afghanistan it feels like a war zone. In Iran it feels like a war zone, and much of the world feels like a war zone. In some ways these people have a significant service done to them, a favor done to them, because you don't have to persuade them that they're in a great controversy. You don't have to persuade them that they're in a war zone. It's obvious to them. For those of us, though, that are accustomed to leisure and accustomed to the comforts and accoutrements of life, we, we have a sense of entitlement, and we don't feel like we're at war. We feel like it's a beautiful day. We're going to get some food in the park after this. We're going to go surfing tomorrow morning. It doesn't feel like a war zone, but it is. We live in a place where our very lives at any moment could be snatched away, and not because God snatched it away, but because agents, both human and angelic do evil things. We're going to talk about the nature of that in just a second. There are two kinds of things in life. Things that you what? Can change and things that you what? Now, forgive me, I run the risk of oversimplification here, but I want you to think about everything in your life that happens to you 
or everything in your life that is some consequence of others' decisions that reverberates into your life. And I want you to think about it in a very simple, compartmentalized way. There's only two kinds of things that are happening to you. Things that you can change, things that you can influence, things that you can affect the outcome of, and things that you can't. And the things that you can't are a call not to worry, not to grumbling, not to murmuring, not to complaining. Things like your genetics. Right? There's just things that you cannot control. These are calls to patience and prayer. But if it is something that you can change, if it's something that you can affect the outcome of, that is a call to action. Can the church say amen? We're not to sit idly and apathetically by and say, woe is us, woe is me, lost people all around, needy people all around. There's nothing we can do. No, there is something we can do. The fact that we can't change it for everyone doesn't mean we can't change it for someone. Can the church say amen? Come on now. Things you can change and things you cannot change. Two kinds of things. I love this statement. One of my favorites from the pen of Ellen White. Great Controversy, page 525. It is part of God's plan to grant us in answer to the prayer of faith that which He could not bestow if we didn't ask Him. One of my prayers for this church, one of my longing desires for this church, and, and I think myself and Pastor Jared and the leadership team here, we're really excited about a lot of projects and, and ministry teams and growth groups and opportunities, evangelistic and otherwise. Man, we, we're planning, we're strategizing, but I'll tell you, at the end of the day, I want this church to be a praying church. My elders will tell you, my elders will tell you, we get in those elders meetings and I'm leaning on them, I'm leading hard on them, and I'm saying, fellas, ladies, when church is done, Don't just start talking about the game. Don't just start talking about the surf. Don't just start talking about whatever it is that your mind wanders to. Not that those things are inappropriate necessarily. But if if you're in church and a spiritual high moment has just taken place, a sermon and a decision, it's very likely that there are people there who are in a moment of spiritual vulnerability, spiritual openness, spiritual transparency. Find those people and pray for them. Don't say, I will pray for you. In fact, let me, just, let me just put this out there for the whole church, not just the elders. Every time you catch yourself in this building or with a church member or somebody outside of this building and you're tempted to say, I will pray for you, just say, let's pray. Because then you're not lying. How many times have we said, I will pray for you, and then some, some morning comes and they think, man, who did I say I would pray for? What was that? Anyway, Lord, you remember. But rather than setting yourself up for a lie, just say, let's pray. In fact, let's practice that together. Let's see if we can say those two words together. It's going to be hard. Let's see if we can do it. One, two, three. Let's pray. That was hard to do, wasn't it? Let's try it again. One, two, three. Let's pray. I tell you, one thing that would thrill my heart would be to see in this church, before church, after church, between Sabbath school, just, just a, and it doesn't have to be a 10-minute prayer, 20-minute prayer, 30-minute prayer, just throw your arm around that sister, throw your arm around that brother, and just have a brief prayer for whatever that pressing need is. Maybe it's a grandson that's unwell, or maybe it's a job that's been lost, or something. People, is there anybody in this room that needs prayer? Come on now. Don't be like my, my youth in the Sabbath school class. You've got you to pull the prayer requests out of them, right? Is there, do, you have, do you need prayer, yes or no? Of course you do. And so when opportunity presents itself to be with a spiritual brother, a spiritual sister, in a spiritual context, in a spiritual building, on a spiritual day, don't just say, oh, I'll pray for you, brother. I've got to go eat my haystacks. <laughs> say, let's pray. Man, I want this church to be a praying church. Can somebody say amen? 
And so the Israelites are presented with a situation here, the kind of thing that they either can or cannot change, and they couldn't change the king of Edom's mind. So this was a call to prayer, and it was a call to patience, but it ended up being an opportunity for complaining. Verse 5. And the, the people spoke against Moses and against God. Well, they got the target of their anger and their frustration and their incredulity wrong. The ones they should have been angry at were the ones that were looking them in the mirror. They could have, I suppose, been upset with the king of Edom, but the real, the real object of their frustration should have been themselves. It was they that decided not to go in on the report of Caleb and Joshua. They had placed themselves in that situation, and how often do we do this? We place ourselves in a compromised situation, and then we complain to God. Some of us live our whole lives of intemperance. We don't take care of ourselves. We eat sugar like it's going out of style. We might end up smoking cigarettes or staying up late all night. And we're breaking continually the laws of health. And then we get into our 50s, 60s, and 70s. And we end up with some debilitating disease that threatens to end our lives well in advance of the average age that we should be getting to. And we're like, oh, God, please heal me now. And there is a place for asking God for healing. Can somebody say amen? But I want to tell you, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. If we consistently place ourselves in a position of compromise, whether it's spiritual health or physical health or family health, people turn around and their 15 and 16-year-old kids are distant from them emotionally, distant from them physically, distant from them in all sort of ways. They're like, what happened? What happened? And then they go and they try to run the rescue operation, you know, the, 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 the pricked dad or the, or the concerned mother at, you know, your child's 16, 17 and just trying to reestablish a relationship that should have been established when they were 6, 7, 8, 9, 10... And I'm telling them, hey, that ship has sailed. I'm sorry. That ship has sailed. I'm telling you. We sow and we sow and we sow and we sow. And then we complain when we reap. Are you hearing me? Yes or no? And who do we complain against? We complain against God. God, why did I get cancer? Now, this is not to suggest that everybody that gets cancer is in violation of the laws of health. It doesn't suggest that at all. Some people are just genetically disposed, and it's going to happen almost no matter what you do. But why stack the odds in the favor of a disease? Why stack the odds in favor of a broken relationship? Why stack the odds against us? Create situations. As the Bible says, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. God does not normally perform miracles and work outside of the normal relationship of cause and effect. God prefers to work within this beautiful, symmetrical, logical, Newtonian world that he has created where actions have reactions. Can somebody say amen? And so when we end up feeling the sting of our own bad decisions, don't complain to God. Go take a long, hard look in the mirror and ask God to restore the years that the locusts have eaten. He can do it. He can restore those broken relationships. He can restore broken bodies, and He can restore broken churches. Can the church say amen? But let's not go blaming God. So they complained against Moses and against God. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Of course, God had brought them up for no such purpose. He'd brought them up to live and to be free for freedom, Christ, to set you free, Galatians 5.1. There is no food, there is no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. There it is, 40 years of eating that man, and they were over it. It was like wheat mix to the extreme. Verse 6, So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. I want to talk about that lang language there. So the Lord sent... This is a giant point. There's going to be two major points today, and if we can get each of them across, we will have accomplished our task. The first one is I want to talk to you about the nature of judgment. The nature of judgment. Maybe you could bring those lights down just a little bit, Nate, just for this particular slide. Or Eli, I want you to see this demonic creature. Look at this guy. 
It's called a saw-scaled viper, Echis carinatus. And this is the other saw-scaled viper, Echis coloratus. Saw-scaled vipers, these are very fascinating creatures, and it's likely that these were the very, they're not long, they're about 40 centimeters long. These were very likely the, the creatures that were the fiery serpents. And you know what's so interesting? I did a little research on these Echis vipers, and check this out from Wikipedia. Echis is a genus of venomous vipers found in the dry regions of Africa, the Middle East, Pakistan, India, and Sri Lanka. They have a characteristic threat display of rubbing sections of their body together to produce a sizzling warning sound. In other words, when they're about to strike, they sound like a sizzling fire. They're fiery serpents. They get their scales together and they, they rub their scales. Right? And not only that, they're poisonous and it's a, it's, a, it's a certain kind of poison that doesn't happen immediately. It's not like you die within hours. It usually would take a day or two, which fits very consistently with what we find in the story because people are in the process of dying when God introduces his solution. These fiery serpents came into the camp. Look at this. Very interesting. The name Echis is a Greek word for viper. Their common name is saw-scaled vipers, and they include some of the species responsible, I thought this was interesting, for causing the most snakebite cases and deaths in the world. This particular genus of viper, the Echis viper, is the deadliest snake in the world, not by potency of venom, but by the number of people killed. Hundreds and sometimes thousands of people a year, still in modern times, killed by these people. And so, all of a sudden, these Echis vipers, very likely these Echis vipers, begin to come into the camp, and Scripture presents us with this seemingly horrific option that it was God that sent them. It says it. I'll, I'll read it again here. So the Lord sent. And how do we square that with the picture that we see of Jesus, this kind-hearted, generous, gentle, magnanimous? How do we couple that with this picture that we have of Jesus? Well, let's see if we can, let's see if we can sort of unpack that a little bit here. First of all, I want to read you two statements from the pen of Ellen White. The first one from the book Great Controversy. We cannot know how much we owe to Christ for the peace and protection that we enjoy. Can somebody say amen? Like I was saying, the azure waters and the, the waving palms of the Gold Coast, we just feel like, ah, this isn't a war zone. This is Club Med, right? And Ellen White comes to us with a word of caution, as does Scripture. We don't know how much we owe to Christ for the peace and protection that we presently enjoy. It is the restraining power of God that prevents... Notice the language. Restraining prevents keeping back from passing fully under the control of Satan, Satan, the enemy, the adversary, the great serpent, the great fiery serpent. The disobedient and unthankful have great reason for gratitude for God's mercy and long-suffering in holding in check the cruel, malignant power of the evil one. But when we pass the limits of divine forbearance, forbearance that restraint is removed. Ah, very different picture now. This is not God actively sending. This is God removing protection that allows, in this case, a natural phenomenon or perhaps a supernatural phenomenon under the influence of the great fiery serpent to come into the camp. It's not that God is actively causing something to happen that might not otherwise happen. God removes his protection. He removes his restraint. And this is a mind-blowing one. This is in a letter that Ellen White, one of the founders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, wrote to another founder, one of the founders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, a man by the name of Uriah Smith. Very interesting. Look at what she said in this private letter to Uriah Smith. I was shown that the judgments of God would not come directly out from the Lord. What? No, no, no. I was shown. I was shown that when the judgments came out, they didn't come directly. They didn't come. What's that word, everyone? They didn't come 
directly from the Lord. Look at this. But in this way. In other words, not like that. God's judgment, she says, don't come directly from him. They happen like this. Well, how? They place themselves beyond his protection. He warns, he corrects, he reproves, he points out the only path of safety. Then if those who have been objects of his special care will follow their own course, independent of the Spirit of God after repeated warnings, if they choose their own way, then he does not commission his angels to, what's the word there? He doesn't commission his angels to prevent, prevent Satan's decided attacks upon them. It is Satan's power that is at work at sea and on land, bringing calamity and distress, sweeping off multitudes to make sure of his prey. And storm and tempest, both in sea and land, will be. For Satan has come down in great wrath. He is at work. He knows that his time is short. And if he is not, what's the word? Restrained, we shall see more terrible manifestations of his power than we have ever dreamed of. See, this is a very different picture. This is the picture of Revelation chapter 7 where the angels are depicted as holding back the winds of strife. The winds of strife are trying to break upon the earth. The winds of strife are trying to break upon God's people and they're depicted as being held back by the angelic power, being held back by God's goodness, being held back by God's mercy, being held back by His restraint. But if we place ourselves consistently, rebelliously, and importunately outside of God's protective power... God doesn't actively send us something. He just allows the natural, or in some cases, in Satan's case, the supernatural consequence to come upon us. What a fascinating idea that God is not directly sending judgment. He is allowing us to have the consequences of our own choices. God says, okay, you want to do that? I'm going to let you do that. In fact, there's this very interesting idea that comes up in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1, which is one of the most fascinating passages on the wrath of God. And right, right contained in that, in that chapter, Romans chapter 1, where Paul is discussing the wrath of God against the Gentiles and then in chapter 2 against the Jews, it's so interesting. He uses this phrase, God gave them up. Now, if we, if we had only that, that would sound really harsh and really capricious and really terrible. God gives people up. What kind of God is he? I thought this was the God that said that, that I will never leave you or forsake you, that no one could pluck you out of my hand. How does God give them up? But it doesn't say God gives them up. It says that God gives them up to. And in Romans 1, the thing that he gives them up to is their own choices. God never gives up on anyone. Can the church say Amen. No, 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 no. But when we have elected habitually and consistently to give up on God, eventually when that threshold of divine forbearance is is passed, God gives us up to our own choices. And I'll tell you, if you're out there as a parent, you know that this is one of the great struggles of parenthood. When to protect your children from the consequences of their bad choices and when to allow them to suffer the consequences of their bad choices. It's a difficult thing. And there are parents that overcompensate in both areas. There are some parents that always protect their children. Oh, he couldn't have done wrong. He couldn't have done that. He couldn't have, he couldn't have, he couldn't have, she couldn't have, she couldn't have, she couldn't have. Oh, my child's an angel. Can't say anything bad about my child. Always protecting, always shielding. Oh, my child couldn't have lied. My child couldn't have spoken an untruth. My child couldn't have been impatient. My child could have. And the the child goes through life feeling like an absolute angel because they've been told they're an angel. And they are. But sometimes they're a fallen angel. Always angels just sometimes fallen angels. Are you with me? 
And then there's the parent who never protects, who never shields, who doesn't look out for, I don't care when you come home, I don't care what you get for grades, I don't care, I don't care, I don't care, I don't care, I don't care. Both of these are wrong, and the trick for good parenting is to know when to shield and when to give over. When to give over to the consequences of the bad choices and when to shield. And here, Israel has pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed and complained and complained. And now they complain not just against Moses, but against God. And God's like, all right. And the thing they kept saying is, we're going to die. We're going to die. We're going to die. And he's like, okay, you apprehend death. You anticipate death. You see death. You think that's what this is about. Then you will have what you think you're going to get. Because I, what can I do? So he doesn't send as much as he allows to be sent. And in this case, these fiery, sizzling, saw-scaled vipers make their way into the camp and begin doing their thing. Look at this. Verse 7. Therefore the people came to Moses and they said they have a sudden realization. The moans and cries. It says many in Israel died. We don't know if it was hundreds or thousands, but many begin to die. And they come to the people and they, they come to Moses and say, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and we have spoken against you. Pray to the Lord. There's one of those major themes, Moses' intercession. Pray to Jehovah that he will take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. I love this idea that Moses prays for the people. He intercedes. His patience was often tested. In fact, it was tested just, the, just shortly around this time when he struck the rock. God had said, just speak to the rock. And he was so, must we fetch water from this rock for you rebels? Kabam! Kabam! And God's like, ah, I wish you had done that. Moses was a human as well. His patience could also be stretched. And here we find Moses not in an impatient moment, but in a Gen, genuinely patient moment and the people come back to him and just like our own teenagers just like our own children they've gotten into trouble they're suffering the consequences of their own choices and now they want to come back and make it right and our natural inclination as parents is to say I told you so come on parents am I kidding or not I told you so I told you, if you I told you I told you and not that there's not a time to say I told you so but I, I think Better than I told you in those moments of vulnerability, in those moments of repentance, in those moments of contrition, is not I told you, but I love you. I was hoping for an amen there. Then God says a very interesting thing to Moses. Fascinating thing he says. It's, it's highly unusual, and it becomes a central feature in the New Testament. The Lord said to Moses, not just, okay, the people are healed, which certainly would have been well within the parameters of the resources of omnipotence at God's disposal. No, no. Moses, make a fiery serpent. Set it on a pole. And it shall be that when whoever is bitten, everyone who is bitten, when he looks at that, he will live. So Moses made a bronze serpent. He'd put it on a pole. And so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. What an unusual thing. What a strange remedy. I mean, is this, how medical is this, Dr. Mahanu, right? How is this? Can you imagine saying to that if somebody came in with an ulcer? Okay, make a, you know, make a mold of a cancer. Put it on a pole and look at it. They'd be like, oh, I'm going to go to another doctor if you don't mind. Put a serpent on a pole, and this becomes a central passage in the New Testament. John chapter 3, when Jesus is speaking to, the, to Nicodemus, Nicodemus is not getting it. How can a man be born again? Does he crawl back into his mother's womb? And Jesus is like, ha, you've got to be kidding me. If I talk to you about spiritual things and you can't discern it, if I'm, if I'm talking to you excuse, about just regular human things and you can't discern it, what if I talk to you about spiritual things? You're going to lose the plot. 
He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so, just like this, in the same way must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Can somebody say amen? And here it comes. Say it with me. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Can somebody say amen? The best known, most quoted, best loved verse in all of the Bible, and what's the context? It's Numbers 21. It's the serpent on a pole. It's the fiery serpents. It's the rebellion. It's the complaining. It's the murmuring. It's the impatience. And it's this strange, bronzed serpent at the top of a pole seemingly incongruous, seemingly uh, 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 impossible to work, therapeutically, rationally. How could that work? John chapter 8, verse 28. Then Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father has taught me, I speak these things. When you lift Him up, all of the Jews, the religious leaders to whom He was speaking in John 8, would have immediately understood, Oh, lifting up, when I lift Him. Serpent on the pole. In John chapter 12, my personal favorite, beginning in verse 32, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die in anticipation of his crucifixion. Then the people answered him, We have heard from the law that Christ remains forever. Messiah's not going to die. They didn't understand that there would have been a resurrection. That's another story. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? And here's something we need to bear in mind. The camp of Israel had hundreds of thousands of people in it, perhaps as many as a couple million people. Now, there might not have been as many at this time because they've been wandering for so long. But we'll use round figures of a million people. It's a lot of people. A lot of people. A million people in that camp, and hundreds and perhaps thousands have been bit. And it would have been some energy, it would have been some effort to have gone to the pole. They wouldn't have had the architectural ability to raise up an Empire State Building or a World Trade Center Tower. I don't know how high it would have been. Maybe, maybe 10 meters? And you would have had to make some effort. You would have had to make some energy to go to see the thing. And that's what Jesus is saying when he says, I will draw all men to me. People from the outer skirts and the fringes of the camp would have had to make a special trip to go look. And they would have been weakened and they would have thought, man, uh, what do I want to go look at this silly metal snake on a pole? That's absurd. In fact, there were some really, really good reasons not to look. I can think of at least five. Maybe you can think of some others. Why not look? Well, I can think of several. Here's one. Many had already died. There was the evidence of death all around you, and somebody saying, hey, there's a metal snake on the top of a pole. Go look at it, and you'll be better. Yeah, cheers for that. You mock me in my, in my, in my pain. You mock me in my woundedness. Number two, it would have been inconvenient for some to have traveled, even if it was only the equivalent of a city block or two or three. You think of, you think of an encampment of a million people. That's not the size of this church sanctuary, right? That's, that's a large area, and people would have had to make an energy and an effort to have gone, and people say, ah, it's inconvenient. I'll just stay over here in my tent and die. The venomous serpents were real. This bronze thing was just bronze. It was bronze. Don't talk to me about metal snakes, dude. I got bit by a real one with real scales that made a sizzling sound like a fire. Don't talk to me about metal snakes. The bronze serpent was powerless. Anybody knew that. They'd made it themselves. Hasn't God been telling them again and again that idol is nothing and idol is nothing and idol is nothing? Come on. 
There's no power in that. Well, of course, they knew there was no power in that. And finally, it made no sense. It was, I can think of reasons not to look. Good reasons. Defensible reasons. But there was one really good reason to look. And the good reason was, is that you got to live. Several years ago, I took a trip to uh, Africa, and I, I found out that I was going to an area that was high in malaria, high malarial concentration. And I said, hey, you know, called a friend of mine who'd been a missionary in Africa for 15 years, said, hey, I'm going to this certain area. He said, ooh, that's a lot of malaria there. And I said, yeah, they're telling me I need to take this medicine. And he's like, yeah, yeah, what medicine are they advising? And I told him what it was, and he said, ooh, yeah. And I said, yeah, there, I, I hear there's some nasty side effects. And I went down the list. I said, eh, 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 eh. And he's like, yeah, yeah, all, that's all true. I've taken that. He says, all that could very well happen. I've experienced some of those side effects. And he said, but there is a really good side effect. And I was like, oh, maybe I get better looking. Maybe I get, you know, it's like, I was like, oh, really? There's some good side effects too. He's like, yeah, you get to live. It was inconvenient and it was irrational and it was seemingly absurd. But there was one big upside of going and looking at the serpent. And that was, you got to live. It says that the people looked and lived in Jesus in the Gospel of John. John chapter 3, John chapter 8, John chapter 12. Jesus uses this story. And why a serpent? What an absurd symbol or picture or figure of Jesus. Why a serpent? Well, isn't it obvious? For he has made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus becomes the serpent. Jesus becomes the snake. Jesus becomes the filth. Jesus becomes death. Jesus becomes the curse. When he was lifted up, he bore the sin of the world on his person. He became sin for us. He was like the serpent. And we look to Jesus there, the offscouring of the earth, as it says there in Isaiah 53, we esteemed him not stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. We couldn't even look on him. We turned our eyes away because it was such a, it's a disgusting and repulsive idea to think that somebody hanging on a Roman instrument of torture, bruised and bleeding hundreds, now thousands of years ago, how could that have any medicinal benefit? How could it have any therapeutic benefit? It's absurd. And yet Jesus says, just look, believe. I want to close with two statements from the pen of Ellen White, and then I want to talk to you about these computer screens. Heretofore, many had brought their offerings to God, and they had felt that in bringing their offerings, they had made atonement for their sins, but they did not rely upon the Redeemer to come, of whom these offerings were only a type. The Lord would now teach them that their sacrifices in themselves had no more power than the serpent of brass, but were like that to lead their minds to Christ, the great sin offering. Nothing but the righteousness of Christ can entitle us to the covenant of grace. And somebody better say amen. Nothing but the righteousness of Christ. I love this idea. We've already spent time on this. How the notion, the idea that we would bring a sacrifice. That we would, what, what, with what shall I come before the Lord? With thousands of rams? Will he be satisfied with rivers of blood? Should I present my own son? We've already learned that the whole notion of sacrifice was to give us a picture, a window into the great sacrifice that's not something that we provide, it's something that God Himself provided. Can you say amen? There's no power in the sacrifice. There was no power in the bronze serpent either. God is teaching them the lesson. These are just windows. These are just vehicles. These are models or miniatures or arrows pointing you to me, to my goodness, to my mercy, to my power, and to my salvation. And so too with us. What are the things, what are the religious things that we think are powerful? Let me tell you, they're not powerful. Our songs are not powerful. Our praise is not powerful. Our prayers are not powerful. 
powerful. Even these religious accoutrements, these seemingly nice religious things, they're not powerful in and of themselves. They are only powerful in as much as they direct our minds to Him who possesses all power and all goodness and all mercy and all love. Your prayer isn't powerful. God is powerful. Your praise isn't powerful. God is powerful. Your money's not powerful. God is powerful. The serpent wasn't powerful. God was powerful. God was good. God was merciful. And I love this line. Nothing, nothing, nothing but the righteousness of Christ can give us access to the covenant of grace. As the old hymn writer said, nothing in my hand I bring. I'm just clinging to that cross. I'm just clinging to that pole. I'm just clinging to that pole with that bronze serpent. But when Jesus came, he wasn't a bronze serpent. He was a flesh and blood and bruised and beaten and battered and bloodied human who took the form, as it were, of a serpent when our sin and our rebellion and our oppression and our injustice and our rape and our murder and our unkindness and our disease and our ugliness and our meanness and our gossip was laid on Jesus and he bore it and he wore it and God says, look and believe and live. Close with this. Look and live. Look at this. The lifting up of the brazen serpent was to teach Israel an important lesson. They could not save themselves from the fatal effect of the poison that was in their wounds. There it is. There's the wound. The snake got me right there. The poison's in there. What can I do? Can't do anything. The poison of cancer is in you guys. The poison of cancer is in me. The poison of sin is in me. Selfishness is in me. What can I do? Should I put a tourniquet on it? Should I put a charcoal poultice on it? Is the garlic going to take away my sin? No, 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 no. They could not save themselves from the fatal effect of the poison in their wounds. God alone was able to heal them. Can the church say amen? We are not to yield to discouragement. Well, that's what happened in Israel. Oh, whinging and whining, go around. We are not to yield to discouragement, but to rely on the merits of a crucified and risen Savior. Look and live. He will save all who come to Him, though millions who need to be healed will reject His offered mercy. No one who trusts in His merits will be left to perish. Please say amen, church. Please. No one. Not one. Not a single one. Many are unwilling to accept of Christ until the whole mystery of the plan of salvation shall be made plain to them. They refuse the look of faith, although they see that thousands have looked and have felt the power of looking. To the cross of Christ, many wander in the mazes of philosophy in search of reasons and evidence which they will never find. While they reject the evidence which God has been pleased to give, they refuse to walk in the light of the Son of Righteousness until the reason of its shining shall be sufficiently explained. All who persist in this course will fail to come to a knowledge of the truth. God will never remove every occasion for doubt. He gives sufficient evidence upon which to base faith. And if this is not accepted, the mind is left in darkness. If those who were bitten by the serpents had stopped to doubt and question before they would consent to look, they would have perished. It is our duty first to look, and the look of faith will give us life. Beloved, the message of the gospel is look and live and believe that God became sin for you. God in Christ bore your sin. He bore your stubbornness. He bore your rebellion. He bore your, 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 all of your ugliness. He bore it and you believe it and you look and you live. Now I have a question for you as we close and that is what are you looking at? But in many cases, I already know. You're looking at these things. 
Look at these things that I brought up. They come in all sizes, these fiery serpents. They come in the 1980s size. 1980s. They come in the 1990s, 2000 size. They come in the 2000, they come in this size. You ever seen one of these? Look, it opens up. It can sit on your lap. Laptop. Just sit right there. You don't even have to move. It, it used to be so far away when the television was all the way across the room. Remember when you have to get up to change the channels? Oh, the indignity of it all. Black and white. Coat hangers sticking out of the top of that box. Trying to get the... Oh, and now you just set it right there. The whole world at your fingertips. Even right now, I'm online already. I'm getting Facebook updates as I open. Look at this. And if that's a little too big for you, you like something a little more discreet, maybe something like this would suit you. Go lovely with that snappy spring ensemble that you've been looking at. Great. But even this is so big nowadays. Look at that thing. It's old. It's like, it's like Henry Ford had these things back with the Model T. No, no, no. You can get this size. Look at that. The mini comes with its own case. Set it right up. Just look at that. Woo, it's getting so... Oh, maybe that's even too big. Maybe you need something like this. This is much better. A little television. It doesn't have to be across the room. In fact, it's, for most of us, it's never further away than our arm. Where's my phone? In our Sabbath school room this morning, we did something, and I thought a few of the young people were going to have a heart attack. We had a cell phone-free zone. All cell phones off. We provided paper Bibles. Some of them had never seen a paper Bible before. So, oh, what is this? What is this strange, thin substance? And there are words. Now, I'm not falling for that old, I'll look at it on my Bible trap, because I know how that works. It happens on me, too. I get these little push notifications, and it's like, I go to look up a text, and oh, whoa, before I know it, the text is like, it's like four layers back of, of attention span. Now, I want to tell you something. Here's a fascinating point. You might be saying, are you saying, and if you're not yet ready to let your, have, have your children have phones, then you can give them the much more innocuous iPod. So what, what, what do you want? You want the 12-year-old iPod, the 10-year-old iPod, or maybe you've graduated to the, you know, the teen with their phone, just can't even conceive of a world without it, or maybe you're more of an iPad person. What, what size serpent would you like to be bitten by? Now, here's the point. Some of you are thinking, wait a minute, is he saying these things are all serpents? Well, I am kind of saying that, but here's the larger point. Those serpents were in the wilderness all along. God didn't have to create them. They were there. They just hadn't been bitten. Just because this is in your home doesn't mean you've been bitten. But some of you surely have. You see, the serpent in the wilderness wasn't in and of itself a danger. But when it bites you, it's a danger. A smartphone is just a phone. Until it's not. And then it becomes that thing that you cannot get your eyes off of. Gotta have it. Gotta look at it. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or it could even be more nefarious, could go the pornography route, could go then. I've already had this conversation, and I want to say this again. I took a few hits for it. I'm going to say it again. Parents, if you have teenage children and you have unlimited internet access in your phone, you are making a colossally bad choice. I'm going to switch to this, Nate. If you have the, if you have the internet in your house, unlimited, and your children could go in their own room, teenage children, at any hour... And look at the internet at any time on their devices. I'm telling you right now, and the kids might hate me for this, you are making a terrible parenting choice. And I have no problem saying that. 
not because your kids are bad kids, but because you're not sending your children into the library and then saying, stay away from the CD section. You're not sending them into the bookstore and saying, stay away from the CD section. You're sending them into the strip club and saying, now look at your Bible. Because all it takes is three, four letters. All it takes is is one click. All it takes is one, and, and all of a sudden, all of the filth, all of the, you see, for those of us that are 30 and older, 25 and older, we can't even, we don't understand. Our children have never known another world. This is their world. We're at the end of their fingertips, just at any moment, in any place, under any circumstance, filth that you would never put in front of your eyes can be right in front of them. And if it's not filth, it's the utter distraction of continually. We know how this is, and I want to challenge my young people, because at the end of the day, you don't need discipline. You need self-discipline. If you're waiting for your parents to lay down the rules, and by the way, some of you parents should be laying down far better and more reasonable rules, and you say, why is he harping on this? Beloved, I am deeply concerned about our young people, and I'm concerned not just about the young people, I'm concerned about you. How much time are we looking at these fiery serpents? Are we looking at filth? I used to be able to say, I don't own a television, and I don't. But that doesn't matter anymore. Now I've, I've, I've got dozens of these little televisions. Not literally dozens, but effectively. Every disgusting television program right there, ready for the download, right? And your kids are a lot smarter than you are, by the way, on the internet. Far smarter. You say, oh no, I checked his history. History tells you nothing. All you have to do is click the little button that says private. History tells you nothing. You just click the private button and you're off to the races and you go look at your son or your daughter's history and everything looks fine. I'm telling you, it's entirely possible that the soul of your family is being robbed right from underneath you. And I'm not saying be controlling. I'm saying have a relationship with your children. And children, have a relationship with your parents. Talk openly and honestly. We do occasionally watch movies in our home, but I watch movies with my children. And when something comes up and I pause it and I say, Landon, what do you think about this? Jabel, what do you think about this? Is this a good idea? Is this a bad idea? This decision that this person's about ready to make. And we don't watch filth. But we'll watch something and say, hey, what do you think? Oh, Dad, I think this is bad. I think he's going to make a bad decision. And there will be occasional movies where we'll start. We'll get 30 minutes in. I'll say, sorry, boys, I can't have this in my home. You see, the one reaction is to say, no, 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 none for you. Well, that's an overreaction. And then you'll basically be pulling the rubber band back and creating a slingshot effect where your kids can't wait to have it. But the other is to say, ah, I trust you. Go ahead. And I know the kids in this church, and they are generally good kids. In fact, all of them. I love the young people of this church. That's one of the reasons I volunteered to teach their Sabbath school class. But I want to tell you, the snake crawled in the tents. It bit them in the tents. It can happen in your house. It can happen on the bus. It can happen anywhere. And I'm telling you, whether it's these, not all video games are bad, but there are some video games that these kids are playing that are insane. Hugely addictive. In fact, they've done study after study, and I'll just throw this out there. There are new studies in which pediatricians are saying that you should not set a screen in front of your children under the age of eight, independent of the content. Content has nothing to do with what they're seeing. It's a flashing screen that they're now beginning to see is actually affecting the neural development of children. And yet some children, that is their babysitter. Just, just nonstop, never more than an arm's length away. And I want to challenge you. What are you looking at? For many of us, this is what we're looking at. Right? And it's not just on the kids. It's on some of you too, watching ridiculous... My question is, is are you looking 
at the serpent on a pole. I want to challenge you to spend at least as much time looking at the bronzed serpent as you spend looking at the flashing screen. I want to challenge you to spend at least as much time looking at the bronze serpent. I had a privileged day yesterday. It was an unusual day for me. My appointments just sort of opened up, and I ended up with like six hours to sit on my back porch and just bathe myself in the book of Numbers. And I tell you, it was so awesome. Now, most of us, we don't get that. I don't get every day I can spend six hours in Scripture. That's a rarity. But man, just to bathe yourself in the text, better than any movie, better than any Facebook post, better than any Instagram, better than any pornography site, just to bathe yourself in God, in His goodness, in His Word, and in the righteousness of Christ. I plead with you, church, look and live. Father in heaven, the righteousness of Christ is right there, available And not just available, but abundantly available, universally available. Not one should be lost. Not one should be cast aside. And Father, just as that serpent was available, there it was. All you had to do was look. You didn't have to do 50 push-ups. You didn't have to run a mile. Just look. And Father, I want to pray for my church, and I want to pray for this world, Father. Our soul is being stolen by the flashing lights. And so many of us are just so enmeshed in this mechanical, technological, social media world, we can't conceive of life without it. And Father, I want to pray, I want to plead for the soul of my young people. Father, I don't think they're going to get rid of their phones. I don't don't think that's even necessary. But Father, I plead that you will fill them with your spirit and fill them with grace and fill them with the love of Jesus, that they'll be what we learned about today in our Sabbath school. They'll be men and women chiseled, a character chiseled by the grace of God. Father, give them not just discipline, parental discipline, but Father, I pray, especially for those in the 12 to 20 years old, give them self-discipline. Make them men and women after your own heart. And Father, for us as parents, Lord, we're, we're out of our depth here. We're, we're in way over our head. This is a world that we could have never imagined. This is a world, the Buck Rogers world of the 21st century, only it's stranger and weirder than we could have ever thought. And many of us, Father, have the blinders on because as parents, we should either be almost totally discouraged or we are totally ignorant when we think about the access that our children have to things that we would have never thought about 20 years ago, 40 years ago. So, Father, may we not be either discouraged or ignorant, but may we be intelligent, proactive, spirit-filled, God-fearing, righteousness of Christ-believing parents. And may we speak openly and honestly and vulnerably with our children. Father, I plead with you on behalf of Christ, save our families. I claim the promise of Isaiah verse, chapter 49, verse 25. I will contend with him that contends with you, and I will save your children. Father, save us, save our children, save this church. Teach us to look and to live. In the name of Jesus Christ, let everyone say, Amen. Amen.